Good evening, everyone, and welcome to St. Paul's Cathedral and to St. Paul's Institute's event on Anglican social engagement. My name is Barbara Ridpath, and I'm the director of the Institute, and I have the privilege of introducing our speakers and of chairing this evening's discussion. Before I do, there are a couple of other things I'd like to do. First, I'd like to make apologies for Canon Mark Oakley, who is our boss, who really wanted to be here but is ill this evening, so please accept uh, on his behalf the apologies of Canon Mark. Second, I would like to note for those of you who haven't marked it on your calendar, that today is the anniversary of the birthday of Canon John Collins of this parish, one of this cathedral's more radical brethren, uh, which is why we decided to hold this event this evening. Collins believed that St. Paul's Cathedral can and should be radical. Radical things spoken and supported from this bastion of the establishment have potential to do much bigger, have much bigger impact than necessarily from elsewhere. On this, I can do no better than to quote from Canon Collins' first speech to chapter, in which he said, unless we can bring the cold stones of St. Paul's to life, we might as well hand the place over to secular authorities as a national monument to a dead past. The fact that we're here doing this suggests that we don't want to do that. <laughs> and third, I would like to explain why St. Paul's Institute originally decided to do this event, because it's personally terribly important to me. I took up the position of director nine months ago, having spent most of my career in the city. I was taken aback by how often, when explaining my new job to friends or colleagues or other city folk, I received the reply, what right does the church have to talk about these things? Well, the answer seemed pretty obvious to me, but I realized I needed to go better armed and defended into these conversations than I was both historically and theologically. This led me to start doing some of my own research. Now, given the erudition of our speakers, I'm gonna skip the theology and only briefly look at the historical element of Anglican social engagement, notably within these cathedral walls. Looking historically led me first to Canon Henry Scott Holland, 1847 <coughs> to 1918, who was keenly interested in social justice and formed PASIC, Politics, Economics, Socialism, Ethics, and Christianity, which blamed capitalist exploitation for contemporary urban poverty. Some people could question whether we've really come very far since then, because that question still gets asked. In 1889, he formed the Christian Social Union. Then I learned about Canon John Collins, founder of Christian Action and Christian Aid, and a host of others within St. Paul's precincts alone who believed that their faith required active social agency, good works, and political engagement. In my own neighborhood in North London, I had long been aware of Canon Samuel Barnett and his campaigning wife, Henrietta, who founded Toynbee Hall in the Whitechapel Parish of St. Jude. They went on to create a community in North London intended to exemplify their values, which is why I can't get a drink in my neighborhood, uh, which continues to support Toynbee Hall to this day. It became clear to me that many of the societal changes around public schooling and working conditions that we now take for granted in this country were originally campaigned for and created by people of faith. 
Thanks to Canon Mark, I also had the occasion to attend a Catholic conference on the economic crisis where the principles of Catholic social teaching were often referenced. This led me to wonder what the Anglicans had to say, not just do, on this subject. It also led me to Malcolm Brown and his wonderful book, which I would, should be holding and raising up to you, but was for sale on the uh, table outside. And I shall give another plug to that and quote from it shortly. Now, if I may lead the audience a bit, the distinction between action and reflection will recur and become a bit of a theme for this evening. And I think the next issue is why now? Because it has pleased me since I joined last June to learn of the many ways, some exclusive to the church and some secular, that there appears to be a real revitalization of social engagement since the financial crisis. To name but a few examples, we have the Pope and Archbishop Welby discussing, quote, why not broker an ecumenical way of working to address concrete global issues of suffering and poverty? We have the Credit Champions Network, London 2020, the Church Urban Fund, represented by Paul, and the recent Bishop's Letter, all trying to consider how society pulls back from the excesses of liberal economic theory and the isolation of modern urban life to something that resembles a renewed sense of community and the common good. There appears to be a cycle or pendulum of activism, not only in the church, but also in society, which goes hand in hand with the sense that society has gone too far in any one direction. Today, the focus on, on the individual and consumerism means we seem to have forgot community and a sense of the common good, and many want to restore that balance. Whether secular or religious, it's terribly important we work together. Now, the next thing I'd like to think about very briefly is social theology versus social activism, not so much versus or or. And this I call thinky versus dewy, and with apologies to an old boyfriend who used to divide the world into thinky versus dewy. Um, my understanding of William Temple's principles suggests that freedom and dignity of each person and the social nature of persons begets the principle of service, which suggests there is no divide between thinky and dewy. However, I found this aspect of the debate in the book Malcolm edited extremely interested, and it is why we have both thinky and dewy represented here this evening. In the book, Jonathan Chaplin argues that activism can proceed quite well without theology. But he then goes on to say regarding a biblical basis for activism, and I quote, let me venture the bold claim that so far, Anglican social theology as a whole, and certainly in its official expressions, has largely failed to lay out adequate biblical foundations for its recommendations with any sustained seriousness. It needs to do so. This is partly for the pragmatic reason that it will thereby engage better with its growing evangelical constituency. But more importantly, it should do so because a social theology that has no demonstrable grounding in biblical texts will and should lack authority within a church that still officially professes scripture as its highest authority. Added to this is the discussion of whether it's a job for the clergy or the laity or both. Elaine Graham's work suggests that the cultivation of the skills of theological literacy among the laity is necessary to maintain the reservoir of <coughs> theological reflection 
on which continued faithful engagement depends. Now, having attended Paul's Better Together trustee gathering last Thursday, I can certainly say as a layperson that I found the theological reflections the most nourishing part of the afternoon. But I suspect it had something to do with the fact that I was also preparing for this evening's presentation, so the, the, it was research. If we don't engage the laity as well as the thinkers, as Malcolm writes, the interest in social theology dwindles to be the preserve of a smaller group of Anglicans who well may, may well be detached from the most vibrant areas of social engagement. Now, hopefully, we will debate this further as the evening continues, but it seems to me that some of us need to be nourished by the theology, and some of us will just prefer the doing, and some will want a mix. There's unlikely to be a firm answer for all of us. Nonetheless, I quite like a quote I found from the US writer Anne Lamott, who said, I don't find spiritual insights sitting around thinking thinky thoughts about what it means and who God is and who shot the Holy Ghost. I find God in the utter dailiness and mess of it all. Which accords with Jean Vanier's approach of living with those less advantaged than ourselves as the finest way to learn and to serve. In other words, it's not enough just to pray for something. We have to work for something, especially as the diverse and inclusive nature of Anglicanism makes it unlikely that we will ever arrive at a definitive answer on many of these issues. So I'm going to stop with a challenge. My gut feel is that we could do much more if we worked across theological and denominational boundaries. We are so much stronger when we work together when wherever we can, we sing with one voice. However, I suspect some of the very reason the church sometimes struggles with this is because we have such a variety of different reasons for social engagement. For some, it is a part of mission, or proselytizing, or simply witnessing. To some, it is aimed at conversion, or the bringing about of God's kingdom on earth, or just because it is morally responsible and integral to the concept of loving one's neighbor as oneself. Also, depending on one's parish and one's community, there is sometimes a question of whether we're helping each other or helping others in our engagement. <coughs> working across parishes of different socioeconomic levels is as important as working within parishes. Are we on the front line trying to change policy or are we on the breadline serving? The answer is both and all. To me, the challenge is not do we have to do the theology. It is not do we all agree. To me, the challenge is the paradoxical simultaneous religious and institutional decline and renewal, as Malcolm writes. To me, this is not just our challenge, but possibly also our moment. It is possible that this renewed church engagement in the midst of our ever more secular society is the one thing that could actually be a way to enhance trust and voice of the church and to become more relevant to the general population. It could strengthen bonds with local community, help renew our common life, and draw people in at a time that the most feel a need to belong to part of something, to belong to something. Now I've gone on way too long, so I will introduce our speakers. First will be Malcolm Brown, who is Director of the Mission Public Affairs Division within the Church of England, 
responsible for ensuring that all mission and public affairs works take forward the Archbishop's Council's strategic vision. We're going to check you on whether you succeed. <laughs> Within the team, Malcolm carries specific responsibility for work on economic issues, as well as contributing, where necessary, to other areas of the division's portfolio. Malcolm has been ordained for over 30 years and has worked as a parish priest and as an industrial missioner. And I believe you were director of the William Temple Foundation, were you not? And a principal um, of a regional ministerial training course. Before ordination, he worked for the Mission for Seamen. He has published widely on topics in Christian ethics, including a textbook and the recently edited book I have been citing all evening. Malcolm slightly defies my distinction between thinky and dewy because he manages to do policy while thinking about theology. Malcolm will give us some of the historical and theological groundings to our social engagement. Malcolm. Thank you, Barbara, for that introduction. And I think the acoustic here is a wee bit challenging, especially if, like me, you're a bit deaf. So if you can't hear, do wave and I'll try and correct. Um, there was so much in that introduction that made me think I prepared the wrong talk. Um, but I'll try and do what, what was asked for. But rather than start way back historically, I want to start with something that I guess is historic in some ways, but is at least autobiographical and relates to my own time in inner-city ministry in Southampton in the mid-1980s, which shockingly is 30 years ago, when we were confronted with a mercantile city, with heavy industry declining rapidly, with very rapidly rising unemployment, with some very um, seriously affected estates around the city and some patches right in the city centre of tremendous poverty. <coughs> and as a team ministry in those days based in the city centre. We worked on all kinds of projects for um, alleviating poverty, representing people. Um, we set up uh, welfare advice centres. Um, I worked in cooperative development and youth training and things like that. It wasn't very popular. Um, I remember when the election agents of one of our parties burst into the Welfare Advice Centre and photographed every piece of paper they could see in an attempt to prove something that was partisan to get the grant stopped. Um, but the interesting thing is that I don't think any of us thought particularly why we were doing this. We didn't ask the question that Barbara posed at the beginning, what, what is the church's right to be speaking and acting in this arena. We did it in a kind of visceral way that this, you know, the suffering we were encountering cannot be right. And that's not a bad starting point. But when the hard questions came, not only why are you doing this, but you shouldn't be doing this, and came in some cases from within the church, who argued that by concentrating on material and political affairs, we were neglecting people's immortal souls, we didn't have the answers. Nothing in my training, only a few years before, had equipped me for this. The study of ethics in those days was essentially pastoral dilemmas, which bore very little, little relation to real situations. And that's when I started returning to study, 
returning to academic life to some extent to try to equip myself to answer that question, why? Which is essentially what I've been trying to do ever since. But a few years ago, with the current financial crisis and the inevitable poverty and <coughs> marginalisation that that would, was known to be causing, we were in a similar position. Christian social action, not only in the Church of England, across the churches, was burgeoning, is burgeoning. It's coming now largely from our evangelical churches, not exclusively, but in, in, in a way that was never true in the 80s. Evangelicalism no longer condemns the social gospel as if it's some kind of heresy. Uh, if it does, it doesn't do it uh, across the board. And yet, it seemed to us, in uh, th those of us who've been around a while, that this burgeoning of action was no more theologically informed than we had been in the 80s. Now, resisting very hard the temptation to say, you know, we've caught up, why can't you? Or would you like to learn from us, please? We thought, actually, you need to start a different conversation. We're, in, we're not in the same place we're in 30 years ago. And that was the genesis of the book Anglican Social Theology, which was asked for by, or put it this way, a group of bishops, particularly in urban dioceses, asked for some work to be done. And the book is what happened as a result. And I think the book tries to offer some feeding for the activists. It tries to reach back into the traditions, particularly the Anglican tradition, but also Anglicanism being what it is, Anglicanism's conversation with other theological traditions. Now, if we go back um, into the earlier part of the 20th century, and even into the 19th, you can see the beginnings of the church responding to rapid social change, excuse me, industrialization, urbanization, and so on. Now, the American theologian Max Stackhouse has a very interesting typology of what he calls the social gospel, which was the American movement. If people talk to you, incidentally, about the social gospel, it is an Americanism. It refers to an American tradition. It's not actually really the term of art in, in England or Britain. But Stackhouse suggests that the different phases of Christian social action have been responses to questions which, as it were, the world has posed, which the traditions of Christian theology that were prevalent in, in the day could not answer. And so he looks at the American Civil War as a turning point when theology had to address humanity's capacity to turn on itself. And he notes the First World War as another moment where the almost industrialization of killing had caused massive ruptures in the concept of Christendom. He moves on to the civil rights movement of the 60s, which again posed questions which the churches were not used to trying to answer, and so on and so forth. And he, writing incidentally in 2001, just before 9-11, he very presciently said, the next turn must be towards a theology of the religions, which I thought was interesting. The question for me is, can you do a stackhouse typology on the British tradition, the English tradition, the Anglican tradition? I think you can, but it's not the same as you might expect. We had our civil war a lot earlier. We kind of got it out of the way. And in some respects, the Church of England is the remnant of the civil war settlement. It's a church which 
in a kind of caricature, you might say, has organised itself not around doctrine, which is divisive, not around a leader like Lutheranism, which is divisive, but around the idea of place, the Church of England, the parish system. And the idea of place allowed the church to be broad and accommodating of other differences. It took what, um, following the English Civil War, might be considered the one thing that English people had in common and made that the basis for a church. And I say just in parentheses, is it any wonder that as modern people become less attached to place, the strings holding the Church of England together begin to fray at the edges? But I won't go down that route just now. After the First World War, which I think was as traumatic for all of us as, as it was for the American tradition, and particularly after the financial crash of 1929, theology, the church, had to start ask, answering some questions that it had not really thought about before. The First World War, I think, gave rise largely to a, a, a very popularised, anyway, Reinhold Niebuhr's Christian realism, a, an approach to Christian ethics that tried to take sin seriously. And as people like today, like Stanley Harvass, would say far too seriously, in that realism about sin clouded their understanding of grace. But the crash of 1929, even more, um, with its connotations of the end of British dominance and British empire, shook the church's foundations too. And part of the response, very interestingly, I think, were the great conferences, mostly with the figure of William Temple somewhere near the centre of them, but also less well-known figures like Joe Oldham and others. The Oxford Conference of 1929, the COPEC Conference, and most of all the Malvern Conference of 1941, big interdisciplinary conferences about what sort of a world do we want to create, and the act of faith, incidentally, that the Malvern Conference of 1941 represented to ask that question when the very survival of Britain um, in the face of Nazism was in doubt was, I think, a tremendous act of faith. But those questions were asked among Christians from many disciplines, political scientists, economists, poets, authors, as well as theologians. The idea was that the different disciplines could be brought together, possibly with the church as the honest broker, possibly with a fairly unspoken uh, assumption that most of the participants would be church people and predominantly Anglican, and that the different disciplines, including theology, could work together to discern ways forward that were both theological and Christian and conformable with that and practical and could be done. This came out perhaps in the way that most people are aware of it in Temple's little Penguin book of 1942, Christianity and Social Order. Um, I've got a first edition at home, it's fallen to bits, but it's fascinating because coming out as all penguins did during the war, it has a little panel in, inside that says, if you've enjoyed reading this book, please leave it at a post office so that members of Her Majesty's forces can enjoy it too. I mean, almost like a kind of popular education movement of, uh, sponsored by Penguin Books. So although Temple's book sold, I think, about 100,000 in the end, it may have been read by many, many more than that. So no wonder it was so influential. 
and seen by some as, as part of the inspiration behind Beveridge's report on social security, behind the welfare state of 1945 and so on. But I think there are interesting things in that temple tradition. It's lingered a long time. It probably informed the work of the Church of England for 40 years in a very conscious way and has gone on influencing it in a less conscious way for a long time. But part of what we were trying to do in the Anglican Social Theology book was to ask what has changed? How far can we rely on Temple and that period as um, a, a guiding star for social theology today? I think the most interesting thing as you read Temple is that he too starts with that question, what right has the church to, as he put it, interfere? But he deals with it with a rather humorous anecdote of, uh, of going with a number of other church leaders in 1925 to see Stanley Baldwin, the Prime Minister, to try to mediate the end of the miners' strike and being told by Baldwin, how would you like it if I sent a group of ministers to rewrite the Athanasian Creed? And this, as Temple says, was regarded by most people as a palpable hit. It was a hit in 1925, but by 1940, 42, he's already writing, but it's just a modern heresy. And the tone of Christianity and social order is essentially, if people understood the history the history particularly of Christian theology, they wouldn't make that mistake. He actually begins, his first words of the book are, very few people these days read history. Now, if that was true in 1940, how true is it now? And the idea that you can appeal to the Christian story in that overarching way and treat any departure from it as a foundational story, as a heresy, just doesn't, I think, hold water today. We have to start from a different apologetic. I think Temple saw the eclipse of Christendom as simply a modern aberration. Nowadays a lot of people talk about Christendom being over. I think that's an exaggeration. I think we're working with fragments, as people like Geoffrey Stout have said. We're working with fragments of traditions like the Christendom idea that most people understand the roots of their ethical and moral thinking to come out of the Christian story. I think the connections are now much more tenuous, but that they're still there in some ways. The good thing, I think, about the conference model, the Malvern Conference, the Oxford Conference, was the idea that theologians have a lot to learn from other disciplines. That if you put people who are experts together, they will inform each other. I think underlying that model, however, was something about the theologian sort of holding the coats while everybody else slugged it out. How far did the theology actually mix it in that rich interaction of disciplinary dialogues and discourses? I think as time went on, particularly after the Second World War, the theologian became marginalised, that economists, political scientists, natural scientists and others, all had fascinating dialogues and discourses, and theologians sat on the fringes and listened in awe. For a long time I helped convene European conferences on theology and economics at the Mulheim Mission Academy, and I noted over the years how the theologians hung on every word of the economists, and the economists tended to absent themselves when the theologians were talking. It wasn't a dialogue on the whole. 
But out of that temple tradition, I think we've got now a situation where the Church of England has some instinctive responses to political, economic and social matters, but has forgotten why it has these reactions. And so if you turn to the bishops, House of Bishops' pastoral letter on the general election that came out a few weeks ago, it touches on Europe. It mentions that you know, it, it is actually a call back to the Christendom model. We have a lot of our history in common. We should not be falling out with each other. It says in terms, this is not an argument for the structures of the EU as they are now. But the reporting, albeit at the behest of Conservative Central Office, and I can explain the story of that later if you like, um, said this looks as if the Church of England is going to be campaigning during the general election campaign for EU integration on an even higher scale. Well, no, it doesn't say that, actually. And there's also a little, only a little, in the bishop's letter about welfare. It points to the dilemma of welfare, that a civilised society needs it so that people can live, uh, just live, actually. But it also points to the dangers of dependency, the dangers of all kinds of imbalances and disincentives in a welfare system. It is, you might say, studiously even-handed, but the reporting was, again, bishops bash the government for welfare reforms because they don't understand welfare. Now, there's something really interesting in this. First of all, the Daily Mail and the Times and the Telegraph, who did the bashing, um, actually have a story ready set up in type almost about the, what the Church of England believes, no matter what it says. But... It isn't actually far wrong, I suspect, in terms of if you were to ask the General Synod or House of Bishops what they think about Europe and um, welfare and so on. It's not a million miles. What's this about? I think it's because the last time we were really articulate about social theology in the middle of the last century, we were deeply pro-welfare. That was Temple's position. He was a mate of Beveridge's. He was a friend of Tawney's and of Keynes's. And in the middle of the Second World War, the deep imperative was to rediscover the common narratives of Christendom that had been so torn apart by totalitarianism and fascism. So it's not wrong that those are the sort of things the Church of England feels in its guts, but we've forgotten why, and we've forgotten to ask those questions in the contemporary context. So the book on Anglican social theology tried to reopen some of these questions. It wanted not to ditch Temple and throw him overboard. There's still plenty there that's worth retaining and thinking about, not least to know where we came from, but also the idea of an appropriate Christian humility about other disciplines. As the bishops say in their letter, we have no special expertise in economics by virtue of being bishops, or the church, we might say. And I think the fact that the temple position continues to be unpopular with um, a lot of people is some mark of its enduring interest. Um, if these are things that may not be discussed, welfare, European integration and so on, then they must be pushed forward. If a consensus is that they are somehow off limits, then they must be forced onto limits. But the critique, I think, must be that temple assumed an enduring Christendom model that simply is not where we live now. As I say, I don't think it's over, but it is residual. I think he was completely unprepared, and why should he have been prepared, 
for the marginalization of the Christian narrative that we find in our society now. Um, others, including my friend Nick Spencer at Theos, have noted how whatever we say, we're interpreted as saying something else. And that goes for bishops' letters, it goes for anything we might say on mo almost any subject. I've been interviewed many times on radio uh, on all kinds of topics, but within three beats of the dialogue, we're on to sex. I used to begin my lectures when I taught ethics by saying I've got to the age when I'm more interested in money than sex, so we're not going to talk about sex, we're going to do the market economy. Uh, it got me through several years of teaching, but it doesn't get me through this job, I'm afraid. I think we were unprepared because we relied so much on temple for the degree of plurality that we face in our society now. And that's not just a function of difference and people from a wild variety of different origins and sources and, and, and ethical positions. It's to do also with the lack of history, that we live in a country, as the political philosopher Patrick White called it, he wrote a very interesting book called On Living in an Old Country. We are an old country that has neglected its history. So we don't have anchors, we don't have um, understandings of how we got here as a people, and so the church's constant attempt to try to relate contemporary ethical and social issues to an eternal story are not easily received. And we are changing as a church. The evangelical revival of the last 20 or 30 years is a major factor. Evangelicalism, of course, is a very um, multiplex phenomenon. I might also almost say vociferous in the sense that um, it, it tends to break off bits. Uh, a friend in the Church of Scotland says that in Stornoway, population 6,000, you can go to eight different Presbyterian churches on a Sunday. But uh, that apart, evangelicalism in the Church of England is where the energy is now. Um, there are all sorts of reasons for that, some of them good, some of them perhaps not so good, but that is where it's at when it comes to social action. That's where people are moved viscerally to support the poor. That's where the old dialogue that was derided when we did it in Southampton in the 80s by our evangelical colleagues, the old claim that we do this in order to witness to Christ and people will ask us why we do it and then we can witness in words. And we were told, no, they don't, they never ask. But I hear exactly that same claim now made by some of my evangelical colleagues. And I don't think they're wrong. I think we were right in the 80s and they are right now. But as Jonathan Chaplin says in the book, the theological resources for that evangelical revival of social action are terribly, terribly thin. My anxiety is that when those hard questions come to be posed again, when that social action leads people not into the glories of food banks but into the controversial areas where powerful forces don't want them and ask why is the church interfering, there will not be a depth of tradition to reach into to answer the question. But what again is really, really interesting is how you might say in Anglican terms the ends of the horseshoe are beginning to come round to talk to each other that Catholic social teaching, that long-standing tradition of deriving from papal encyclicals a, a theology of Christian social thought and social action, 
Catholic social teaching is proving extremely interesting to Anglican evangelicals. And you could ask a lot of reasons why, not least because neither would claim to be liberal. And part of the problem, frankly, is liberalism in its different incarnations. But that meeting of minds is something we had to capture in the book. So we asked Anna Rowlands to join us in the process. But we, we wrote the book by meeting every few months for hours on end until we talked ourselves out. And then we went away and wrote chapters and critiqued them. And Anna has written, a, who is a Roman Catholic uh, theologian now at Durham, married to an Anglican priest, however, and having taught in an Anglican theological college, she does understand a bit about us. And uh, she wrote this fascinating chapter called Anglican Social Theology and Catholic Social Teaching, Fraternal Traditions, question mark. And the fraternal is lovely because what she partly means is that mainly it's blokes doing it. And there's a feminist perspective here that's not actually as clear as it should be. And I have to say that my first list of contributors to the book was put to the, a group of bishops who asked, doesn't Malcolm Brown know any girls? <laughs> so uh, we changed that. <laughs> so looking for a moment at the bishop's pastoral letter, the most recent, perhaps, um, output from the Church of England on social theology, there are indeed some echoes of temple here, not least in the passing mentions of Europe and welfare. But you'll find here much more critique of the state than Temple was prepared to venture. All those years since Beveridge, since Bevan, since Attlee, have taught us that actually reaching back into that tradition isn't just going to solve our problems. One of the points made here is that we've had two governments since the war which have changed the way we think about ourselves. Attlee's of 1945, Thatcher's of 1979. It's now nearly as distant in time from Margaret Thatcher's first election victory as she was from Attlee. And isn't it time for a, a fresh vision? What the bishops do pick up, however, is the idea of correctives, that you might say when we most think we're right, we're most likely to be wrong, that liberal individualism, which dominates our ways of thinking about ourselves as a people needs the corrective of a stronger communitarianism, a stronger sense of we and us and the things we do together that rather than the me, I and so on. It was at a conference uh, last week where an educationalist from Cambridge was saying how her studies show that middle class children reach for the word I again and again in a way where working-class children still reach for the word we, which is a very interesting insight. The correctives the bishops are looking for in this letter rally around, I think, the concept derived in the end from Catholic social teaching of the common good. But of course it's been a phrase in our liturgy as the Church of England since the 1960s, that we may serve one another and seek the common good. In fact, one of the reasons the bishop's letter is so long, which got a good deal of criticism, is that I successfully argued with them that the only previous intervention by a church into an election campaign that had stood anything like the test of time was the Roman Catholic document called The Common Good from 1996. And I said, that's 12,000 words long. You need something of similar substance and weight. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury said to me, this letter you're drafting, Malcolm, it's short, I said, no, Archbishop, it's quite long. He said, Malcolm, you misunderstand me. That wasn't a question. 
think there's something here that's about correctives, which is theological too, and I here reach for my old mentor, John Atherton's work, where he talks about an age of atonement through the end of the 19th century and well into the 20th. The dominant theological motif, in other words, was atonement. It was drawing people out of an evil world into lives of holiness. It was setting people right with God first. It was about the church as the place where people are saved. And he says, sees that giving way during the middle of the 20th century to an age of incarnation, an age where the church understood its role to be being there among the people, seeking, as some said in those days, the prevenient grace of God, a good Wesleyan term, the God who's there before us. Um, Barbara mentioned I'd been an industrial chaplain. The industrial mission movement begun by um, Bishop Leslie Hunter and Ted Wickham in Sheffield in the 40s explicitly argued it was mission not to take God into the steelworks, but to find the God who was already active in the steelworks and in working-class male culture and mission to the church to make the church less captive to its bourgeois um, mistaken belief that bourgeois values were Christian virtues. The age of incarnation, I think, is, has given way in part to another age of atonement. That's partly what the evangelical revival is about. But it's not simply a swing of the pendulum. It's a movement now, I think, into a church that's much more conscious of the corrective value of those two doctrinal positions, both of them utterly orthodox, but either of them stressed to the exclusion of the other, not orthodox at all. We are working, I think, now towards a social ethic that is deeply incarnate, present, active, dirty hands, you might say, and nonetheless with its eye on atonement, on making the world somewhere where people can come to be at one with God. And I think if we can sustain that and not descend into sectarian squabbles, which is something the Church of England does rather easily, we might just be onto something, although if my theory of correctives is correct, it will never be the last word. Thank you. Thank you very much, Malcolm. And we have copies of the bishop's letter outside. They've been reprinted with a purchase price on them, so I apologize that we're not handing them out, but they're reasonably priced. The plan, and I should have said this at the outset, is that um, Paul's now going to speak, and I will introduce him, and then what we'll do is have a little bit of a, hopefully, a discussion between the two of you, and then we'll open this up to questions. And afterwards, there is a, a drink served outside for anybody who wants to carry on discussing with um, among yourselves or with anybody who's still here. So um, hold on, and you will eventually uh, get a word in. And I apologize for not let, making that clear at the outset. Uh, let me now briefly introduce the venerable Paul Hackwood, who is a residentary canon at Leicester Cathedral. Is that true? You've been burying the king lately? Yes. <laughs> On Sunday. <laughs> and chair of the Church Urban Fund. Paul was educated at Birmingham University and the Bradford University School of Management. He was ordained in 1990 
After a curacy at Little Horton, he was the social responsibility advisor for the Diocese of St. Albans from 1993 to 1997. Following this, he became Vicar of Thornbury in Bradford and in 2005, Archdeacon of Loughborough, a post he held for four years. As chair of the Church Urban Fund, Paul has been responsible for the Better Together and Near Neighbors programs set up by the fund, and I hope will speak passionately to why action is central to the church's heart and mission. Paul. I am going to be much more practical than Malcolm was. Um, and I want to talk about um, the sort of shape of social action and then give a, an interpretation of what I think is happening under the surface and what that might mean for the future. Now, let me just begin by setting out the scope and the range of all of this because um, it's really quite impressive, it seems to me. Um, about a million Christians are involved with church-based social action and their work reaches about 10 million people per year in England. So that's about a fifth of the population. So no small number. Churches volunteer about 115 million hours a year, which is an increase of 17% on two years ago and almost 60% uh, increase on four years ago. Christians not only volunteer, but they also give um, generously 400 million in 2014, which was an increase of 15% over the last two years and 40% over the last four years. And there's also been a continuing diversification of social action projects by, by churches. So five years ago, the average number of projects that churches were involved with was about five, and now it's about nine. So across every measure, the amount of engagement that there is at local level is increasing. Our research we've undertaken at Church Urban Fund indicates that more than 90% of Church of England churches are involved in responding to at least one social need in their community. So just over three quarters of churches are working in schools, just over two thirds helping to run food banks and over half run luncheon clubs or drop-ins. And there's a massive variety of activity so food distribution and food banks, parents and toddler groups, festivals and fun days, children's clubs, job clubs, work with the elderly, debt counselling, youth work, cafes, counselling and relationship courses, work with the homeless, social enterprises, and an increasing number of really quite clever and innovative projects that have risen from what's been happening locally, but come up with quite clever solutions to the problems that people see themselves facing. And we're beginning to see some really quite ambitious projects in terms of the change that people want to bring about in their communities. But we do need to keep this in proportion, it seems to me, because total spending, total public spending next year is likely to be about 747 billion. Now that includes things like policing and interest payments on debt, pensions and education and so on. But if you strip all of this out, Welfare spending is around 220 billion. Now, if we say that the total turnover of the Church of England is about 1 billion, and the spending of all churches on social action is probably just a little bit less than 500 million, then we can get some idea of the proportions involved. We could also set that against the figure for the local authority, which is about 40 billion. 
So I think we can safely say that church-based social action is not replacing the state in any meaningful sense. In financial terms, we're really quite small fry, but the impact of the work that we do tends to be much higher. So we can talk about the value that we bring being much higher for churches than it is for other organisations. Now, why the increase and what does it mean? Well, I think the explanation that there have been significant cuts and so the church has stepped into the gap to respond to the need that's been generated is only a part of the answer. The very large increase in activity in 2010 and 11 came before there were any real cuts in public services or in benefits. My theory is that something much deeper is, uh, is going on and something much more profound. And I think what we're seeing is something like a reconstruction of civil society, which is coming not through debate and discussion about how we should live together, so it's not coming through ideas or theories, but it's coming rather through practical action to rebuild neighbourhoods and communities and allow people to take control of their own future. So there's a recognition, I think, in communities that things are not good, and so people are mobilising and organising for action. And if the figures I quoted earlier are correct, they're mobilising in quite considerable numbers. They have a view about what a good society could, should look like, and they're very practically working, working to set out to create it. Now, I don't think we should be too surprised about that, because... The reality is that most people, in, certainly in local communities, are very disillusioned both with mainstream politics, which they perceive as almost completely detached from their everyday concerns, and the idea that they're simply passive consumers of goods on the receiving end of big corporates whose integrity and values are out of touch with their own. So it seems to me that that this is really very, very hopeful. It's hopeful not only because numbers are increasing, numbers of people who are engaged in their communities and are taking seriously the issues of society are increasing, but also of a, because of a second trend that's developing in the way church-based social action is shifting. And I want to illustrate this by talking a little bit about food banks. I used to think that food banks on balance were a bad thing. They have considerable potential to create dependency. They can be, it seems, there can be, it seems to me, no greater indignity than having to go and ask for a bag of food. But at the same time, and at the same time, surely I thought we ought to be able to organise welfare in a way that doesn't need food banks, that people can actually you know, we can set the system up so that this isn't important, that this isn't necessary. But I've begun to notice a pattern emerging that's called me to question my original assumption. When food banks first started to emerge at scale, they were often simply a bag of food to tide you over. So a church would make a collection on a Sunday and they would give the food out on a Tuesday. Um, and that was really... For, for quite a few food banks very early on, the model. 
But what they then did was they developed into signposting organisations. So you'd receive your food bag and also get some help with how to deal with your debts and how to tackle your homelessness or be directed to a drop-in centre to help you with your loneliness or your mental health problems. So they became very much a person-centred wraparound provision, dealing with food, but also helping to sort out other issues based on the person. <coughs> so quite often public services come in and they do a thing to you and then they do another thing to you. But what food banks were doing was they were focusing on the person and looking at what was necessary for this person's need. So they became more sophisticated. <coughs> but what's happened more recently is that people who run them and those who work in them have started to ask questions about why people need to be fed in the first place. They've become sites of political action and political engagement. So Chris Mould from the Trussell Trust has found himself in direct conflict with DWP about asking questions about why food banks are necessary in the first place. The pattern is that what starts as isolated practical action soon becomes more organised and connected and then for some starts to create a new political awareness of what sort of society they want to live in. And it's possible to discern the same pattern around issues of financial inclusion and homelessness where there has been practical action better coordination of that action and then a shift on to ask questions about why things are like this in the first place. So where's all this going? Well, one of the themes that came through in the Bishop's election letter, which Malcolm has spoken about, was that neither the state nor the market can offer us a complete answer to the question of how we create a thriving society. So 1948 was not a complete answer, 1979 was not a complete answer, and neither was 1997. They were all honest attempts at creating the good. But the consequences of them, for quite complicated reasons and because they overlap and because other things have happened, is that they've left us with a society that's really quite fragmented and damaged. They've left us with a society, first of all, with very high levels of inequality and with a diminished view of what equality might look like, which has been reduced to an individual rights issue, which is primarily the, the responsibility of the state to mediate and deliver. But if we look at a deeper Christian understanding, for example in Paul, we see a different concept of equality. As it's about the value of a person in relationship with others. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Equality there is much more of a social responsibility that we all, that we all have a responsibility for. And it's from these relationships and from the foundation of connection that we build the rights agenda. They've also left us with a very diminished view of freedom and liberty. So the freedom of markets is a freedom from. So a breaking down of constraints so that we're all free to choose or more accurately to consume. Now this really is a very reduced idea of what freedom might be like. Um, a more wholesome understanding would talk about freedom for. 
So freedom for some sort of goal or you know, has freedom that has some sort of end point. It has a direction of travel. Now, freedom that has a purpose, um, that is in some way a constraint that leads us to the good. And uh, this is really quite an important theme, of course, theologically. Um, to as many as believed in him, he gave them the power to become children of God. Our freedom has a goal that's about what sort of people we are, about how we understand our own character and our own conscience, and how that gets wrapped around a series of relationships and connections uh, across the whole. Now I think that what social action is doing is it's beginning to reconstruct these foundational ideas of freedom and equality. It's releasing human agency and the capacity of people to direct their own future and developing a wider concept of equality that's about the responsibility we owe to each other. It's taking people on a journey that starts with small local actions and then gives them the confidence to ask bigger, deeper questions about the sort of society they want to live in. It ends with them being part of trying to make that society a reality, both in practical ways, but also in calling to account the nature of the way society functions. Now, if social action is expanding the idea of freedom and, and reconstructing the way we understand equality, then it has real transformative <coughs> power. It has the capacity to renew civil society and to begin to rebuild participation in ways which will ultimately create greater accountability in the state and in the market. Certainly social action in general and in Christian social action in particular seems to work not so much, though it, though it is important that services are delivered, um, it, but it works not so much at the delivery of services, but rather at encouraging people to have a go at things for themselves and to bring about that change for themselves. So it encourages people to be agents of change. And it also encourages them and connects them with their neighbours. So it encourages a much broader idea of equality. Now it's early days of course, and I think we're still dealing with a number of broken dreams about how society should be working. But it seems to me that this holds out quite a bit of hope for the future, because it has the capacity to reshape the political landscape by encouraging greater levels of participation and engagement. And it's participation and engagement that's informed by the reality that people have actually experienced of working with people who are homeless, who are asylum seekers. And so it's an engagement that comes with a passion and a commitment to see change come about. Now at Cuff, we've been trying to do what we can to support these trends. We've been working to reshape the organisation as a national infrastructure, which is what we think is needed to ensure that this work brings about change on the scale that I've set out here. So we're doing three things. The organisation has changed considerably over the last few years. First, we're supporting work in local churches and other church organisations 
And we've, we've done this by establishing a network of hubs across the country where we bring people together for mutual support and for thinking and working through and reflecting. And also particularly for building confidence. Because the real issue quite often in, uh, in, in some of the difficult places where this work goes on is that people are actually overwhelmed by their context. So bring them together, help them to have a theological conversation about the connections that they're making is a real way of strengthening uh, their engagement. Then the second thing we're doing is we're acting as a channel into Parliament in general and government in particular about what's happening on the ground. So we work at representing what local churches tell us are the issues that they're engaged in and saying to us about the issues that they're dealing with. So we've done research on food banks, which we've sent to all parliamentarians. We've done research on credit unions, which we've sent to all parliamentarians. We did a piece of research on uh, what local churches bring to the common good. We talked about neighbourliness um, with Theos, sent that to all parliamentarians. And we go around talking to them, and I've probably spoken to about 150 maybe a few more. People have had us over to talk about what the issues are with churches. I've been to see Ian Duncan Smith, I've been to Downing Street. I mean, they are interested in the work that we do and how that can shape the agenda. How far that changes the agenda at the moment is another question. But there, there, there's no sense in which I think we're being excluded because we're the church. There is a willingness to hear what's being said. Then the third thing that we're trying to do is to act as a channel to get usable resources to local churches because we tend to do most of the things we do as churches on an absolute, um, you know, no budget really. I mean, it's all, it's all very, very uh, held together by sticky paper and bits of string. So what we've been trying to do is to get meaningful resources so that we can up our game to some degree and have access to the same sorts of resources as other organisations delivering these sorts of services, but doing so in a way that doesn't mean that we have to pay for the funding that we get with our integrity or with a, a you know, opt, opting into the values that are not really uh, um, what we would want to, to engage with. And we've done that with the Near Neighbours programme, so we've had a programme uh, working to get churches to engage with other faith communities to try and build connections. We've had two uh, phases of that, about seven and a half million has gone into local churches for that work. Looks like we're going to have a third phase um, of that. Uh, we're also working with MPA on the rollout of the Credit Champions Network across the country, which will help churches work with, uh, with financial exclusion issues. So we're trying to get those resources in, but resources in a way that actually enhance the mission of the church rather than causing us to be co-opted into other people's agendas. Now, I was asked to say something about why I'm personally committed to this work, and I think I've set out why I think it's so hopeful. But it may be my age, but I suppose that I've come to realise that it used to be the radical and the brave thing to do, to call things to account and deconstruct the motives and the inconsistencies of church and society. Now I'm coming to believe that the fabric of our life together is so thin and worn that the radical thing to do is now an act of construction. It's about building a new future.
it seems to me that we're in a time where the, the sheet of paper on which we're working is really quite blank. The very, very clear themes of market state and marketized state no longer have the power to hold us. And there's more of a chance to begin to influence the direction of travel and the way things go. And I think what we have to do is to build up our confidence, step back out into that space and be part of the business of shaping what that future might look like. So I think that these are really, really exciting times. And I don't think we've had any times like this for almost a generation. Thank you. Copies our Church in Action report on the table outside. Do take them. Thank you, Paul. That was extremely optimistic and very encouraging. I'm going to be slightly more cynical, I'm afraid, and say, do you think as this political activism rises out of the work that you're doing and that we're doing in the church, and and I'm hoping to get both my speakers in on this, that actually some of the politicians aren't so thrilled that people are becoming better informed and better engaged because it makes it harder for them to do what they want to do. Well, I think that's a good thing. I mean, <laughs> I think if we step out into that space and we're talking about a wider idea of freedom, which is about human agency and just having some shape to our own lives and that being owned, particularly by people in poor communities. We're talking about a wider view of equality as a set of relationships. I think that begins to offer a critique of the really closed down debate that there is at the moment about uh, our political future. I mean, and I'm not sure that the answer to our question of what sort of society we want to live in will be answered down there. I think it will be answered out there. Um, I mean, I go and talk to Westminster politicians, and there's not a lot. There's not a lot, really. <laughs> I'm, I think I demur from that a bit. Um, I want to draw a bit of a distinction between politicians and the politicians who are in government. Um, it's nearly always possible to have a really um, creative conversation with politicians in opposition, because that's their job. They've got to think. They've got to think why we lost last time and how we can win next time. Um, but they're usually quite open to, to thinking. We had some very, very constructive conversations with conservatives before the last election. Um, a lot of that led into what became the big society. And look what happened to that. Um, and the people we were having those conversations with are either stuck on the back benches and marginalised, or they've been promoted to places where they can't think and speak openly and freely. Um, there's a, a discipline about government, there's the pressure of events that I think, uh, I think the one thing we haven't faced up to is how impotent our politicians are when they are in government. Mm. But the current conversations around the Blue Labour project, which was launched a couple of weeks ago, um, it's not yet mainstream. It may never become mainstream, but it's, it's not a million miles from all the big society conversations of five years ago. Um, and was it last week or the week before Michael Gove made a speech at the launch of a thing, a new project called The Good Right? And if you took out the naked electioneering, um, 
he could have taken most of it from the bishop's pastoral letter because one of the bishops asked me to draw up a parallel column of what was in the letter and what was in Michael Gove's speech. It was about seven or eight points. The only thing is he expressed them more succinctly. <laughs> but, you know, th th there's, real, there's real thought going on. Um, the problem is being able to discuss that in the context of practical politics, where, first of all, the levers you've got often aren't connected very much, and second, the pressure of stuff coming at you is, I think, overwhelmingly now in a global market beyond the grasp of a lot of national politicians, and that's something we haven't quite got to grips with yet. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I'd ag I agree with most of that. I, I do think, though, that politicians tend to follow what they see outside, so... It's interesting that Michael Gove writes his lecture and you can see your own work in it, isn't mm. it? It does tend to follow what's happening in public space. I mean, there's, there's not a tremendous amount of leadership, it seems to me, politically. I guess that uh, is a wonderful expression, and it was sometimes attributed to Margaret Thatcher, I don't know if it's true, that a woman can do anything as long as she doesn't demand the credit for it. And I wonder if that's also true about the vocabulary we're using in, the, in these conversations. I mean, if that vocabulary is working its way into political campaigns, and if those values that are ostensibly Christian values of stewardship and equality are working their way into political party platforms, do, is, is that an accomplishment? Is that a good? Do we care if they're being used or misused in a secular sense? No, I don't, I don't think so. But I think there's a lot that's deeply puzzling to churches and to politics at the moment. Um, one is the believing but not belonging phenomenon <laughs> that Grace Davy identified about churches a long time ago. That, um, people on the whole are quite sympathetic to Christianity, they just aren't very keen on the church and belonging to it. But when you know, the bishop's letter came out, Ian Duncan Smith went for it and said, you know, your congregations are declining, you therefore have no locus to speak to us. Well, if you want to look at declining membership, the Conservative Party and the Labour Party have plummeted. We've done quite well by comparison. <laughs> Um, people are not belonging in the way they once did, and I don't think any of us have got a way through that. Um, the way people form ideas seems to be ahistoric, un not, not exactly tribal in the old way, and yet quite, I think, very puzzling, and I don't know the answer. I do think, though, that churches can turn out more than political parties. I mean, community, oh, yeah. community organising in London, they they tend to work more with churches because churches turn out to the actions. Churches and mosques and other religious yeah. communities are still where people will act as us. So we're still, we still have a purchase. Mm. We still have a purchase that I don't think polit political parties do. And I, and I think that most of, quite a lot of their decision making is based on polling data, which flows from, again, the public space. So, you know, it is, it is a, it's a, it's a, and, and, I mean, clearly the stuff about temple, that was a, there was a long working through in public space of that before it became policy. Uh, the nature of the way the sort of neoliberal agenda started to uh, grasp hold, or there was a long sort of work in before politicians grabbed hold of it and used it. So I think there is a, there is, we're in this bereavement curve where we're letting go of old ways of being, but we've not actually started to pick up on what accept I, and pick I, up I, on what I'm absolutely with you. I, I, I tried out um, with a select audience my 35-year rule 
and was laughed out of court, I have to say, but I still think it has a certain salience, that it takes about 35 years, I reckon, for an idea that starts up in academic terms to become common sense at political level. And maybe, I mean, 35 is neither here nor there, but um, if you think that, that one of the first people to review Hayek's book, the, the Road to Serfdom, which was one of the standard texts for Margaret Thatcher's government, was George Orwell, who reviewed it when it first came out in 1944. Um, and now you see in the, the Blue Labour, Red Tory, possibly I think in the Good Right movements, you see echoes of the communitarianism that you can trace back to Alastair McIntyre, 1981 in After Virtue, just about 35 years. Um, that may be wildly over-optimistic, and a professor of politics told me I was being silly on Wednesday. But on the other hand, you're right, that things take a long time it's to generational, gestate. isn't it? But <coughs> a comment I picked up from Larry Elliott on The Guardian at the time of the financial crash was, yes, it took 35 years for Hayek's ideas to be translated from academic theory to political programme. He said the problem is that in the last 35 years, no one's been doing that new thought. No one's been taking a new idea and testing it and testing it, trying it out in theory before they inflict it on people. So what counts as new economics now is still relatively untried and incohate. Mm. And so my 35-year rule may be pie in the sky. Also, it makes us kind of old to see success before we're done. <laughs> Doesn't everybody think <laughs> for somebody that? impatient is very frustrating. Um, one last question, and then I want to open it up to everybody else, and, and it leads from what Malcolm just said. I was fascinated by his his mention of the three interdisciplinary conferences, and then with the change that may be coming but doesn't yet have a solution of what the new formation looks like. Is it time to be trying to invoke a new interdisciplinary conference? I don't think the theology has the confidence to do that yet. And, and I think it, as I suggested, even between the wars and in the war period, had not really worked out its position. It wasn't quite an equal. It was the convener. Um, I think now theologians are still finding some difficulty uh, finding a language because, not just because they can't find the language, but because theology is, you know, in the sort of um, Richard Dawkins mode, regarded as a non-subject, and that catches on. Um, now, sensible scientists don't think that at all, and there is a lot of interdisciplinary conversation going on, but the big set-piece conversation, I think, isn't quite where it's at now. No, I think we've got a piece of work going on with Edinburgh University where we're getting theologians and... Uh, financial mm. exclusion practitioners and mm. teachers together but but that grand set piece I don't think we're anywhere near that I think we're at the at the stage of looking at what the issues are locally and reflecting on them because I do believe that what's going to happen in terms of change in the future is it's going to arise it's not going to be quite the same sort of no, planned um, delivery of a particular idea about how but I guess what, we were both at the Blue Labour launch, and I think the thing that was interesting is how much of that is fed with very strong Christian beliefs underlying. And, and so there are movements that are beginning to pick up where theologians may get some input, but only by virtue of joining in well, with I, other movements. Yeah, I think that, that's a mixed thing that I've not quite made sense of yet. One is um, Blue Labour 
picks up the Christian story because, as Maurice Glassman says very clearly, the labour movement story is a story of church action. And because we've forgotten that, we've forgotten what it is to be a labour movement, he says. Now, that doesn't actually give you a rationale for saying it still has to be a Christian story. So I think, first of all, I, I admire the historicity of Blue Labour. I'm not sure it's the same as saying it's a Christian movement. Now, although um, I think there's a lot of common cause can be made. Um, I think the, the, I wrote a piece with two other theologians a while ago called Citizen Theologians, which was also about what's the appropriate humility not the humility of saying, well, we've listened to other disciplines, um, not just that, but what's the appropriate humility for the church, for theologians in this, which is not overclaiming, um, it, it's not trying to enforce a, his, a, a grand narrative because it once worked and may not work now. But I think we have potential in telling the story of being human in a way that's attractive. Mm. That may not have a direct political payoff in terms of a kind of Christian politics, but I think it contributes to a Christian politics. Paul, do you want to do anything? No, no, I think I'll. Mm. Who would like to ask a question from the audience? Yes, sir. And, and I, we're trying to speak up, so if everybody else could as well, that would be very helpful. <laughs> uh, I was wondering whether, as Christians, we are slightly falling into a trap when we look at the inequality figures by government, which are measures of financial inequality, which, as I understand, don't get to be rising in the way that like planets they are. But that's by the bar. I just wonder whether actually financial equality is something that we should put to one side because that's not the sort of equality that we should, as Christians, be looking at. I mean, I think financial equality is included in a wider equality. And it seems to me that if we have connections and relationships with the other and we don't allow the process of demonization then the connections that we make in the relationships that we build will impact upon the nature of the way we do our financial thinking. It's clear that absolute poverty is something whether inequality as driven by a few oligarchs being very rich is something that should bother us I, I, I'm not sure why it should well, can I move in there? I mean, first to say, one of my biggest disappointments was when Harriet Harman introduced the Equality Bill as the greatest step forward to equality the world has ever seen, and there was nothing about financial equality in it whatsoever. It was all about rights-based agendas for identity politics, um, which struck me as odd coming from a Labour government. Um, I think there's a key here that's about power rather than money. They're not the same thing, but they are intimately connected. If you have a lot of money, you can buy up a lot of things. A very interesting little case just came across my bows a year or two ago of a caravan site, I think, on the Somerset coast that had traditionally been used by working-class people from Bristol in rather grotty old caravans. But it had marvellous views, and they'd gone for holidays there for years and years. Then it had been bought up by an individual who was turning it into an exclusive, used as a positive word, um, exclusive development for much richer people. And so even the view can be purchased, and people can be excluded from it. 
if you have great inequalities of power, you just can't get that balance and people can accumulate power. It's a theme in the bishop's letter, which is, has relatively little to say about financial equality, but does talk about the accumulation of power, um, both in, in the state, in the corporate sector, and of course among rich individuals, as a, a deep imbalance that threatens our sense of belonging to one another. It has a huge impact on politics as well and people's participation, but that's not a theological argument. <laughs> Anybody else? Comments or questions? Yes, please. Can I just pick up on what you said about corporate power? Uh, you referred to saying the world asks mm. questions of theology. Where does theology and where does Christian social practice begin in response to global corporate power and unaccountable corporate power? Well, it's a tough one because our political institutions aren't big enough for the job. Churches are, and we have occasionally boasted on this, often with not much behind us, but we have said we are the first transnational corporations. Um, our Catholic colleagues actually have a lot of advantages in that because they are genuinely a global phenomenon. So is the Anglican Communion, but it has other things on its mind at the moment, which are partly about the legacy of colonialism, um, which hasn't been resolved properly. Um, not entirely. Um, but, but I think that, that is one of the points, which is that when popes speak, and to a lesser extent archbishops, they do have a little bit of purchase on that. Um, I think we've, we've had some successes, haven't we, over things like the fair trade movement, which is showing that actually economics doesn't always um, predict that if people choose to behave unpredictably, economic theory will follow. And we have a certain amount of power to behave unpredictably in global markets, but it, it doesn't really challenge the, the accumulations of power all that much. On the other hand, what is it that most people say that they find not you know, to their liking in their lives? It's that sense of powerlessness. And you only have to read the consumer columns in the newspapers to see how angry people are at the imbalance of power, particularly with big corporations who treat, you know, frankly, the, the idea that the consumer's all right, ways right is rot when you have you know, shareholder maximization of, of, of profit as the, the main goal of business. Um, but I don't pretend it's easy, David. I, I don't think we have the structures and the organization yet to reach back. But it has to be, to some degree, about encouraging engagement and encouraging agency at local level, it seems to me, because as people become more aware of their context, then they become more able to demonstrate against it. Mm. And I think what we've done is we've made, in general, uh, you know, there is such a degree of powerlessness in the communities that we work with that, that it is allowed to, to happen. And it's not until we can renew that, it seems to me, begin to create the agency for people to begin to challenge these things that we really do get the possibility of change. And if I can go to theory and, and sort of the, the level of, you know, rather than practice here, you've got something really interesting happening here about the nature of liberalism. It's something tremendously collusive about neoliberal economics which creates these accumulations of power. 
and the kind of personal social liberalism that atomizes people from one another by focusing on the autonomous individual as if that's the only building block of a good world. And so no wonder people are disempowered if they have no conception of us, of, of corporateness. And so the two aspects of liberalism, social and economic, actually work in a really unhealthy collusion here. And um, this is part of what you know, the, the red Tory and blue labour movements are about, is saying that, as Philip Blonde, the, you know, the author of Red Tory, says, we've had decades of social, um, uh, of economic liberalism, uh, which has become very coercive, and a social liberalism that's to robbed us of any opportunity to fight back against it. And that's why, you know, some of us are quite nervous about being called liberals these days. Well, I think if we all, if we all end up as disaggregated individuals who have no connection to each other, then there can be no challenge. Mm. It's not until we can connect together, we can recognise that we have power to change things, that mm. we can begin to... Mm. And, and I think that's... Uh, I mean, that's why our society is broken. Seems to me. If I can make a pitch for Paul's Better Together Networks, I mean, that's one of the things you're very good at doing is telling the stories mm. of how people working together start to affect change. Yeah, and, and it's right. what I think is building the momentum in that. There's a question here. One thing that's been happening about church people latching into this is this enormous social media that they This is where I feel my age, um, and in any case, I'm a late adopter, as they say. Of anything, you know, I do get around to it eventually, but I don't tweet. Um, don't know how people find the time. I do occasionally blog for other people. Um, I'm I'm really quite exercised by how we do the analysis of the virtues and vices of social media. Um, the risk of it leading to a kind of instinctive and thoughtless groupthink strikes me as quite dangerous um, and yet um, it also has tremendous subversive potential. I think there's something very interesting about uh, when subversion good and when subversion bad, you know, it's, it's not a, a, in itself a word that has much moral connotation. Um, I'm very interested in the Elton John response to Dolce and Gabbana. Um, there's no argument, whatever. It's simply outrage at someone saying something that seems to be out of line with the tribe. Um, there's no debate. It's simply boycott because they're wrong. And that strikes me as the way we do a lot of our argument. And social media does seem to me to exacerbate it, which is I'm right because I'm right because I'm right therefore you're not only wrong, you're bad and we do that in the church too I mean I think we have to steer it and we have to be, a, we have to be there trying to, to shift the shape of it, I mean, any, any system which can support Jeremy Clarkson um, 
on the level that he's been supported in the last few weeks, despite some really very bad behaviour. We know what, a million and a half people now who said he should be reinstated? I, mean, I think there needs to be some caution around that. But what we've been doing with the Near Neighbours programme is where um, people have blogged or tweeted uh, destructive, community destructive things, we've come back with positive things. And I think it does need to be used in that sort of a way. So it does need to be steered. But it is a really... Well, they're very powerful tools for change, and I think we've got to work out the ways of, as you say, work out the ways of working with them positively. I feel in, as, as a next event that's going to be the church using social media as a positive force for change. <laughs> Is there a question over here? Um, uh, a, a comment and a question. Um, the comment um, in, about um, um, you said um, that the questions were why, why is the church getting involved in in, in you know in the social um, arena, why doesn't it stay behind But uh, the church as a body is actually formed by a good many thinking people who've actually got opinions. Um, just because we belong to the church, it doesn't necessarily mean that we all share the same opinion, but we all have five opinions that we want to express. And I don't see why, as members of the church, that we shouldn't be able to express them in the same way that people aren't members of the church do. Absolutely. Um, so that's what I would say to, to, to that person. The other thing I just wanted to ask was about social action. It seems to me that in some churches, social action is actually used as a means to expanding the congregation. Um, it can be used in a very evangelical way, if that's the expression, where you extend social help to people, but there's meant to be a social reciprocation in that people are then meant to express an interest in yeah, I mean, we've done a fair bit of research on this, and there's not a tremendous amount of evi evidence that churches are even have the sense of, of it being reciprocal. So it does seem that most churches see their social action as purely for the good and some churches but it's very few it's very few when you actually measure it see it as a as a deliberate ploy to get people into yes. their building there is a there's a there's a humanity to it generally I, I i'd agree with that but i think one thing that we mustn't fall into the trap of assuming is that churches exist for social action, that we instrumentalise churches and say that's, that's what they're good for. Churches exist to enable people to praise God. Um, that may sound fairly reductionist, but that's actually what, what our business is. And that's why I think people make mistakes of seeing, um, when they talk about churches and congregations as basis for social action, um, they aren't making the connection with what congregations actually come together to do, which is to celebrate the mysteries and preach the gospel and praise God. The point, I think, is that when Christians do those things, when they express their faith out loud together, 
they're motivated also to live together in other ways outwardly for others. But it's not the congregation exactly that's doing it. They'll often do it through joining some other Christian-related organisation. So a congregation who come together on a Sunday is not quite the same as the, the church that's doing the social action, usually. It's a, it, that's a kind of different formation of those people. They're working in a different formation to do social action and a primary formation, in my view, to praise God. And I think if we forget that bit, we, we make churches only useful insofar as they deliver, and I don't think that's a good idea. No, and, and the research that we've done says that, that if, you, if you engage in social action, then your church grows, but, but the social action is not consequent on yeah. the growth. Yeah. So that's the key, I think, is yeah. that um, it mustn't be offered as a manipulation. It should be offered as a gift. And the gift is sometimes reciprocated, but that's on that's in the in the hands of the of the other. Oh, now there are lots of other questions, and I'm conscious that we're Just really the yeah, the clock is striking. What I'm going to suggest is that both those questions are handled outside for drinks, because I'm conscious that some people have been very patient um, sitting here. So. Um, just before we thank our panelists, I'd like to make a blatant plug for an event we're running on the 29th of April, uh, which is actually, and, and Rob might have to help me with the title because I always get it wrong, but the point is, it is about after the election and power and money and responsibility. And it's going to be a superb event talking about how we make the change and be the change that we want to see in the world. And we're pretty excited about the speaker list and, and more about mobilizing the energy that the church has in changing thinking on these issues. Um, I would, if I may, end with one of my favorite um, biblical quotes, which is from the first letter to the Thessalonians, which is, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. And to me, that's a pretty good logic for social engagement. Um, let's thank our panelists and join each other in a drink outside. Thank you.